Underground. Out loud. You're listening to the Poetcast Project. Episode 8 Hello and welcome to the 8th episode of the Poetcast Project coming to you in the midst of December where we are up to our asses in tinsel and mince pies. I'm Missy Demina and I'm here today once again with the fine bromance that is Eamon Soze and Daniel Christensen bringing you the best of what DU Poetcast to offer. <laughs> Coming up on the show today, we have the return of Risky Quizness to see if our guest player Boy Brains can strip me of the trophy. And it's Portugal calling as I take a trip abroad to talk the pitfalls of war, olive oil and some damn fine poetry with the wonderful Josh, which is an interesting conversation you won't want to miss. Eamon, what's coming up on the show for you? Oh, what a show. Uh, coming up shortly, we have uh, a true legend from West Virginia, and his name is Soul Adarites. You know him, I know him, we all love him, uh, and we'll be getting a bit uh, close and personal with him. Uh, and after that, like Missy was saying, we have <laughs> the return of Risky Quizness, where Missy goes head to head with Ethan. <sighs> what could go wrong? Daniel. All right. Thank you, Eamon. I love you, too. Uh, I love you more, man. <laughs> okay, here I go. I came to bring the pain hardcore from the brain. Let's go inside my astral plane. Find out my mentals based on instrumental records. Hey, so I can write monumental. And that's some method man for you. And oh boy, kitties and campers, do I have a monumental right for you. From the brilliant mind of Poets Revenge, under the wane glow of December's chill spotlight. It'll melt your frontal lobe and fry your globe. So keep your ears perked up, and while you're at it, keep your gloves up, or I'll slap the taste out your mouth and on. So, ladies and gent, let's start the show. <laughs> I've been waiting to do that for a week. <laughs> uh, I I picture, I heard you there, and I pictured, I, did you ever see one, well, of course you did, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. You, <laughs> you, you should you should have been the DJ there in that. In that, in that, that, that would have made a film. Oh my God! You have to keep that because it's perfect. I can't even breathe. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't quite get all of that, Daniel. Can you do that again? <laughs> Legends from ink to airwaves. With Eamon Soze. Wield thy sword and shield, for the day has come. Oh, yes, another one. Crop circles from over an even edged field, while blocks roll further down laden paths. Row upon row, blade to soil, cease to fruit, beckons, spoil labour. Whisper those not overturned ever, blackened stalks as dotty eyes remain. This ash of monument, sense to pride, glow to shimmer, flickering mosquito race the inner glaze, within the jar of hope for an outside contaminated world. Noonday sometime, there was a water break, refreshed, unnerved, with spirits high, 
sustenance of sun through crystal glass, flowed as one between bodies, hung across orchards, swung from trees to lattice left with succulent peach. To toil we rose, red, blue and gold, from his plowshare indigo. Those taken turns shake hands, nod, wink, smile. A fedora, a country mile. Were it not brothers, aunts, sisters and uncles, timing a line integrated, one big machine for the production of comfort. How long does such a day last? What is the estimated value? Does this only count for tomorrow? The night may be short, moons piled high, coin toss, stay or escape. Hello, and you're very welcome to this, the eighth ever submission of Legends from Ink to Airwaves. I'm Eamon Soze, and that poetic marvel you heard at the top was written and posted by none other than Solidarities. I call him Soul. Hello to you, sir, and you've utmost welcomeness to this podcast project. How are you keeping? Glad to be here, Eamon. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Um, we'll get to the poem in a sec. Um, firstly, I wondered if you would explain your username a little. Well, it was just a matter of midnight stupidity. I wanted a name that sounded kind of Greek, kind of old school. And I like silliness. I'm a silly kind of guy. I don't have... I like to think I have a good sense of humor. So I picked out words that meant something to me. I'm a person with soul. Uh, I like a dare. I like to tease, be silly. So a soul, a dare, a tease, and say it all together, solidarities. And there it is. I, I was saying earlier, it's... Uh... It's only in, in the past couple of hours I've actually learned to say that username properly. I've been I've been saying something totally different for the last seven years. Um, <laughs> That's because it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, that's um, the first part, right? Oh, it matters. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I was fairly inebriated when I picked mine. It's deep as fuck, uh, but not, not half as deep as yours. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of um, stuff to take in um, in your poetry. Sometimes, you know, you can you can fairly pack it into uh, into a few stanzas. The poem uh, above was entitled "Peach." Um, I especially like this stanza: "To toil we rose, red, blue, and gold from his plowshare indigo. Those taken turns, shake hands, nod, wink, smile, a fedora, a country mile." Were it not brothers, sisters, aunts and uncles, timing a line integrated, one big machine for the production of comfort. Uh, pure fucking class, man. Well done. Uh, I, I think what I especially liked about that stanza there is, you know, you have a couple of inner rhymes going on and you have a fucking lovely rhythm going going through the whole thing. Like, you know, really, really it's a kind of, um, you know, them poems are, are kind of a pleasure to read, you know, beautiful stuff. Um, what's the chances of you going through it a little bit? I can try a little, and I appreciate those kind words. You're too kind. Stuff like that, uh, yes, I like to come up with witty lines. I wish I could come up with more of them, but first and foremost, I'm always driven by rhythm. And I know you understand that. You know, yeah. the, the role of the sound always means more to me than the actual meaning. 
if I happen to hit upon a meeting later on, well, that's a, that's a bonus, <laughs> you know. But for the most part, you know that that was kind of my reflection on the way things used to be. Um, neighbor leaning on neighbor, family leaning on family, um, everybody working together toward common goals. You worked on uh, securing yourself for the following year. And uh, that's something that we see disappearing in this world, in our, in our life. So that little section there is kind of a, you know, that nostalgic look back at the way it used to be. Yeah. yeah. Um, kind of like harvest time where your neighbors might come in and help you harvest harvest your harvest and you'd go help them harvest their harvest. And, you know, if, if somebody came up short, well, then, you know, people would just kind of share a little bit and people would, you know, see themselves through proper sense of uh, community. Um, now, as I understand it, you're living in the south end of the U.S. of A. Have you found much of a difference culture-wise between north and south? <laughs> Yes, there most definitely is. Everything runs slower down south. Um, the further south you go, the slower the ease. Um, thankfully, I'm a little bit country, a little bit city, like the mouse. I'm uh, about two hours from D.C., hour and a half from Baltimore, five hours from New York. But at the same time, I'm in the middle of the woods. So it's nice where I'm kind of at the part of the United States as far as the East Coast to where I'm I'm pretty much smack dab in the middle, a little bit north, a little bit south. And nice. uh, it has its pros and cons. The southern side of things, you have a little bit of the stillness and uh, – but it invades everything, whether you're talking about the foods or whether you're talking about the culture. I'm right in the middle where I get the influence of both north and south. I'm pretty much 20 minutes from where the Antietam battlefield is, uh, which was fought in our Civil War. So that kind of gives you an idea as to what's going on in this area. Um well, out of curiosity, if it came down to blues and grays again, what color would you wear? It would be blue. I'd have to go with the blue. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know. I'd, I'd, I'd probably just get a fucking boat um, out, of the, out of the place. Um, yeah, you and me both. <laughs> if, uh, also interested in, uh, you know, because uh, I, I, I kind of have a an affinity for for music from in around your area you know um how if at all your location shaped your taste in music this area is really big on bluegrass and that was a big influence on me but you also have um as far as my teenage years go you have a lot of uh loose fitting punk that grew up grassroots style in this area which kind of split off into different factions back in the day. You had straight edge and different kinds of hardcore and loose fitting punk, but bluegrass itself is a huge stamp in this area. 
this state's known for its hillbillies. Can and, you play uh, the banjo or the fiddle? Oh, absolutely. If it's got strings, I can play it. Oh. And, uh, I've played mandolin for a lot of years. Um, I love mandolin. That's one of my favorite instruments. I find it um, very hard to tune. They're neat instruments. They're, being a small scale definitely makes them a different beast of attack. Yeah. But they but they are absolute fun. Same with same with the banjo. Banjo's a lot of fun. Um and that that actually gave me my finger picking ability was learning banjo. Um, that and a lot of old folk music from the sixties were uh such an influence on my picking hand. I was telling you about my friend earlier on, Joe. Uh, you know, he's very academic with his, uh, with his, you know, his music and his guitar and stuff. Um, and he he <laughs> he spent some hours teaching me uh, finger picking. You know, I didn't I didn't want to go near it to be honest with you uh, because it seems very fucking uh, complicated. You know, but once yeah. once I. <laughs> Yeah, once I once I once I started to kind of get the hang of it, you know, I, I, yeah, it's it's actually pretty nice. It's fucking really nice sounding out of it. Um, I've yet to try it on a banjo now, you know, but uh, I do have the use of one in Dublin, so I might uh, I'll be down there over Christmas. I might might uh, try my hand at that for a while, you know. Might record a face, see what you think. You know? Yeah, you definitely should. That'd be a lot of fun. I tell you, it took me a long time to get used to. Uh, playing with finger picks because I started out playing with just my fingers when you start playing with finger picks that you use on banjos well it's like having longer nails and that that's really hard to get used to yeah and, they're the, the ones that clip onto your finger and your thumb yeah exactly yeah you know it it takes a long time to get used to that because your brain gets used to how far of an attack you have with your finger grab. Yeah. So, you know, it, it learning that length takes time. And I, I, that was probably the hardest thing for me. And still to this day, I prefer to play with just my fingers than finger picks. But, I'd imagine it, it'd be like Wolverine picking up a fucking guitar, you know, all of a sudden. Speaking of, uh, I've actually seen and heard you play guitar, and I'm much really impressed by it too. Uh, when did you pick it up? When I was 12 years old. Uh, friends um, were older than me, you know, 14 or 15, and one or two of them would know a song, and I had an old acoustic just laying around that was my mother's and uh, the older friend showed me a couple songs on them and then that started my interest. Once I realized that I could learn a song, I just started playing. I started playing out when I was 15, but 12 was when it, you know, first hit me and I first realized, hey, I want to play guitar. Uh, yeah, it's the same myself now. Well, I, I was a little bit older now. I think I was about 19 when I got my first one. I was a bass guitar. Uh, I had some great crack with that now, I'll tell you. Um, who would you say are the top, in your opinion now, at this time, would you say are the top five guitarists of all time? Well, I can never narrow it down to 
five, and you ask me any day, and it'll be different. Well, like but, I said, that an hour ago. My top, two, my top two will stay the same. Joe Satriani and uh, Vinny Moore. Vinny Moore is probably my favorite for technique and Satriani for style. Uh, Paul Leary from the Bajol Surfers. He was a great creative force in strange and unusual music. <laughs> um, but uh, there's a lot of great guitar players out there. I mean, you know, whether you're talking about the 60s or the 40s or right now, there's so many great musicians out there, alive and dead, that just mean the world to me. But, uh, yeah, those three for sure. Those three are probably my top. Okay. Um, speaking of music, I have a theory that Bob Marley was a prophet. What do you reckon? I think you're right. I'd bet on that myself. I, that man's magic. Mm. Yeah. I was telling you earlier, there's a, there's a video there uh, of him on YouTube. I think it was um, Zimbabwean Independence Day concert or something. Um, and he ended up getting tear gas by the National Army. Uh, and you can you can see him there in the middle of the tear gas, you know. He goes down a bit, all right, but he stays there. He stays singing or talking. Uh, the band, the band vacate the fucking stage quick, fast, um, and he calls them back on, kind of thing. When the when the tear gas was kind of getting out of the way, you know, fucking unreal to look at, you know. All right, uh, that's Bob Marley. Good plug in for him. Brings me to my next poem, your next poem. Which is, there is a voodoo about suppressing change, not the healing kind, but the glamour of infinite possibility. A hex chanted over the citizen for the right to look, the click of hip, the fear for original offering, you, a different coloured box in which one should fit. Not one station will mix its music to the world's or time's variety. Only popular hits reign supreme, same as those who spout rhetoric, popular cause. The news shall tell you your concerns. Divide our politics into only two. Those aged lines spread across your brow. How horrid and demoralizing. There's a cream for that. Act now. Fear your feelings and let the right folks show the way to proper expression. There are groups who will tell you right from wrong. You must dismiss the odd or strange changes, knee-jerk reactions. Your mind and gut Scream for you to explore. To be is to be learned. I cry foul for happy institutions and veracious bags, weekend warriors and pleasant weather motorcycle riders who spout who sport just the hardy swag in Halloween mindsets. Condition the individual to fit upon pinhead ideals and government-approved rock and roll. Warning labels will let you think it's racy or taboo. Skin and body parts tease with a product, while citizens are driven by frenzy to a state of constant want. Two-car garage, 2.5 kids. It's in the milk, utterly. Every year the skin gets clearer. I heard neighbour kids yesterday playing on their chemical lawn and talking about what they were going to explore next. Kidding. Those homes are silent as always. While the boat sets in the driveway, eating the pockets, of seasonal skier who props up his favourite football team with a cosy for his beer and belly. Dave put a new bar in his basement. We should see the flat screen. All that away is in the art of conversation. The ploy 
of many thumbed acceptance and agreeable nature. Share that picture of you with your favorite coffee flavor with all 100 friends. Call yourself sociable for the minute you scroll and hop to the coveted app of abstinence. Wait, was that a tweet I heard? Oh, John, lol, he posts the wackiest things. What number are you? I'll program that in and send that funny video. What number are you, citizen? The prisoner. Uh, at odds written there and posted by Soul. The quote at the top of that was uh, quite scathing. I'll give that a read now. Um, to don the freedom of civil guard, we stand again to look at America squarely in the face. This country of ours, despite all its better souls have done and dreamed, is yet a shameful land. It lynches, it disenfranchises its own citizens. It encourages ignorance. It steals from us. It insults us. We return from fighting. We return fighting. Make way for democracy. Um, what struck me first about that was W.E.B. Dubois. It's, it sounds French. Yeah, he, but he's straight up American. That's for sure. That quote's great. When was it taken from? When did he say that? I'm not, I can't say I'm familiar with it. Um, how old is the quote? I just happened upon it. Um, I happened upon it, and um, at the time, uh, it inspired my right. I suppose in many ways, America is the kind of the, the beacon or the mecca of, of capitalism. Um, all that's good and all that's ugly about it. Would you would you buy into that? Absolutely, I would. I mean, our, there, our country has a lot of promise and we've done a lot of bad with it. We're, uh, you know, two steps forward, one step back. West Virginia. Now... I suppose traditionally that that would be a fairly wealthy state anyway, wouldn't it? I mean, is is that kind of plantation cotton land or like? No, kind of- no. It's a, this is a coal-driven state. It's a very poor state. All um, right. It's one of the more poor states. Pretty much been that way for most of its existence. Now, Civil War and pre-Civil War, it it did better as cotton state. You know, it was part of Virginia, and Virginia was, you know, originally quite wealthy. Once it became West Virginia, and all those years later, the whole dynamics changed. Once the South went down, the plantations were gone. And Would you be a patriot? Barbecue and fireworks, July 4th type thing. Absolutely. <laughs> I've always been a patriot. I've always loved my fireworks. <laughs> so it's July it's July toward I give you a bell say soul I'm fucking getting off the plane I'll be there in some hours what do I expect for for July 4th a barbecue a good spread of fireworks some fun musicians around to play some music and act silly bad humor board games that's uh sounds brilliant. Sounds excellent. Not to talk about it too much because obviously it's illegal, you know. Or thanks for the invite to on July fourth. Uh, if I can get there, I oh, will. Uh, um, if you had the chance to make America great again, where would you start? Get rid of all the ignorant people. <laughs> all right. That's hard to say. 
All right, and uh, we'll talk, touch upon that uh, in a bit. First, we'll do what I like to call the dizzy dozen. Uh, I'll quick for you with 12 questions and try answering without thinking too much. Okay, so most memorable book? The Odyssey. Song which you can swim in? Into the Light by Jerry Satriani. Age you lost your virginity? Somewhere around 10 or 11. That's fucking crazy. Uh, first poem, <laughs> which was the mind? I don't know. I don't keep poems in my mind. I really don't. Favorite guitar pedal effect? Delay. Most used word when conversationing? Always. And it always drives me nuts that I always say always. In general, what first attracts you to someone? Intelligence. And then what? And heart. And then what? It'd be the ass. Something which tests your patience. Ignorant. First poet who springs to mind. Poe. Prefer Mark Knuffler or David Gilmore? David Gilmore, absolutely. Um, lovely stuff. Thanks for that. Uh, Dizzy Dozen was developed from an original idea by David McLeod. What scars trail swats through blades of grass? Wilt low, dying yellow by the bask of an all-day sun. Who knew the lethal charms beamed ostentatious? I watched pillows roll tears to an open field, cross-legged, watching pink skies fade to white with distance. Two thumbs twiddled, coaxing moisture from haystalks, spun gold, left in the willowed ends delicate and beautiful, sown sacred, as nature knows how to always give, endless loom shadow, and watched the moon rise, wane with pity, star luminance, and two cranes flown silhouette cry out. Three-eighths of a moment there, written and posted by Soul. Uh, for those of us on the metric system, it's about 0.375 of a moment. Again, very well written. I wanted to touch, if I may, on technique and prep. Um, so you're about to sit down and write. Do you need stuff around you like tea or a cigarette or, or weed or music or something? I'm a person who needs the center when I write. Um, it's a way for me to feel at peace with my life and the way things are going on. So it it tends to be simple things, creature comforts, coffee. I like having coffee. I like having low lighting. Um, helps get me in the moment. Music can help. Uh, most of the time I'm trying to center in on certain emotions or or certain vibes um the main things is quietness and stillness and coffee when you sit down is do you already have a poem written in in your head or does it come out when you start writing kind of thing it's very rare that i have a whole poem written in my head it i mean it has happened but it's it's maybe one in ten happened like that most of the time it's been one thought or kind of feeling it out as i write it along the longer i write the more i drive toward my center um so right so 
it's it's happened a couple of rare times or whatever. So when it has happened like that, where you you've had, you know, you've sat down and you've you've had the poem written already, have you did, have you noticed any change in the way the poem is received? Um, to the way the poem is written. I mean, just like I, I know from from my own kind of I don't know journey through through DU. You know, I, I like I could spend two or three days kind of writing a poem uh, before before I posted it, uh, and then gradually, you know, could maybe do it in two days, a day, or something like that. Um, but it's very rarely even still now that I will sit down and write a whole poem in one kind of go uh, and like it enough to kind of send it on uh, but I, yeah it does happen I do but I, I do I, there, I, there is a marked change in, in the way it's received you know uh, in, in the different kind of stages of uh, how I might write something, you know, do you, do you find that at all? When they're inspired rights, they hit off better. That that's for sure. Um, there's definitely a difference between forced and inspired rights, and it, it can always be told. It wouldn't be. Um, I've done it now. I have kind of forced stuff, and uh, you're, it, you know, it does. It, it it shows kind of thing, you know. But uh, like in terms of, I, you know, I'd write it and I'd leave it, just leave it for a while and go back to it. And I'm, I have forty two drafts, about eighteen of them are are probably kind of scripts or interviews and stuff like that. But like, I've at least twenty five, <laughs> twenty five poems or half written poems. Now I have a lot of yeah I have a lot of scraps set behind but I have all sorts of pads of paper of scraps behind but at the same time if I start writing something and I don't finish it then I'll probably never come back to it again I don't have a I don't have the patience for editing I don't have the patience for any of that stuff it drives me nuts it defeats the purpose when I find my center that I'm writing and I feel good about what I'm writing, you know, I'll, I'll finish it up that day or that moment. Like if it would take into the next day, I, I wouldn't bother with it. So what about titles? How important are they? Uh, how do you decide upon them? I find them to be very important. I, I like titles. Um, I think they're, they're part of the fun is, is finding that, that nifty title that rolls off the tongue. I like doing yeah. that. Would you have a title, you know, before you start? Would you think of it kind of halfway through? So a lot of times I can, I probably think of one halfway through, you know, uh, or, if, yeah. or if not, I'm a bit of a devil for just not putting any titles at all. Would that bother you now? Um, you know, the way a title is important to you, would it bother you now if somebody else kind of just wouldn't, just squander that kind of chance to add that little bit of flair to the top of their poem? No. No, it doesn't bother me. But at the same time, it's important to me. I, I mean, I like tinkering with them. I think they're part of the, well, just anything it, when you're in love with language and how it works or how it flows. It's hard not to want to want to love your title. Um, that poem 
was posted into the spiritual genre. How would you describe yourself in terms of your spiritualness? And what God, if any, do you ascribe to? I'm not of any religious camp or anything like that. But uh, I'm high-minded. We're, you know, we're made of energy. We're of energy. What it is, I do not know. But there's something more than just the us. I must say, you look the picture of happiness in your avatar. Would you say you're the outdoor open-air type? Absolutely. I spent my life as a country boy running around the woods. Could you describe your current abode and its surroundings? I'm in a house in a hillside in the middle of the woods, and that's that's where I'm at the present moment. Do you forage for food and such? Uh, mushrooms, hunt rabbits, set snares, that kind of thing, fish? Absolutely not. I have friends that hunt, bring me deer meat and such, but I, I feed all the wildlife around here. The deer all know me. <laughs> Every creature knows me in these woods. My woods are very small. Um, they've, they've lost a lot through the years. And, uh, you know, just outside society moving in and crouching. Uh, so the wildlife that's in my woods stay protected. Uh, I feed everything. So you get a letter or a telegram that says the podcast team accept your invitation for dinner. And we'll be here in around eight hours. What's for dinner? <laughs> oh, I guess I'd make uh, shrimp of some sort. Uh, shrimp, pineapple, white cheddar cheese, over better rice, some Sounds fried nice. chicken, some uh, asparagus wrapped in bacon, cornbread with uh, butter. Homemade cornbread? Oh, absolutely. Nothing but homemade. Okay. That's the best so, bread to have. Could have a dessert bread of some kind. I love cooking up dessert breads. Nice, nice. All right. Well, then we hereby accept your invitation to dinner. And thank you very much. <laughs> Treat well those deep and grievous wounds. She strolled alongside Devil's Backbone. Dug in heel with curve, throttled to voice, a subject echoed through the valleys, plume of smoke amongst mountain. Daring day to keep up, carried on and thrown past, edged her knife, piercing country veil, long-tooted shoulder bumps mixed with arcane passageways. Squirling whisks by twilight fog, envelopes bracing kiss the fertile forest, catching evening star. Romania beckons. As vibrations chill, signals of hurdles place, but never still, race of the undying symbol, symbol, live. As I heard her from the distance, she fell, broken lane, covered by leaves, soft, empty hand, rugged terrain. I lost my pride to a cold heart, another dawn, forever gone, drawn to endless black. This one came under Dark Pond. That was Sister Missile there, uh, written and posted by uh, Soul. Um, this one came under Dark Pond, so uh, Romania awaits. I, I kind of laughed at that myself. I kind of thought vampire-ish kind of thing. Um, could you take us through this <laughs> one? Uh, perhaps the title first. It all reads very profound as per. 
Well, you know, Sister Missile, that was my nickname for a friend of mine. Uh, and just pet name I used to call her because she was a bullet. She, uh, everywhere she went, she, she threw herself into it head first. Um, that was the way the woman lived. Uh, she was one of my best friends grew up with. And so, you know, it was only fitting that the title be your name, her nickname. <laughs> Lovely stuff. Um, let's talk about DU for a little. Um, how did you come across it? It was actually, uh, it was pure chance. Um, I was in the mood to uh, read poetry. It was middle of the night. It was uh, Christmas Eve. I was depressed. And uh, I was really in the mood for something to take me away. I wanted a short story or a poem of some sort to carry me away from the moment I was in. And uh, so I just literally Google searched poetry. And it was the very first site that came up and I logged on to it and I started reading and I spent the next three days reading poetry and checking in and looking at it and just reading all sorts of everybody that was there. Then on the third day, I was like, well, I'm going to join. And I joined up. Been there ever since. And we're always very happy you did. Uh, In what ways? If any, have you grown as a person and a writer? Well, so many people have helped me uh, to understand writing and just even deeper senses of rhythm. I, you know, I've been a musician my whole life, and yet it still gave me and still teaches me rhythm, you know. And But uh, DU itself, the people, yourself included, you know, have been such an influence on on me and my style and how I view things and how I view good writing and bad writing. I've been it's, blessed with a lot of good people from DU. DU's had a lot of lot of um, influence upon how I feel about it overall. I've always loved poetry, but at the same time, I'm not a person who collected poetry. Um, I collected books, collected comic books, collected regular books. It doesn't matter whether you're speaking of history or whatever, but far as poetry as a whole, I never collected poetry. That was a later love or a happened upon thing or found about through a song thing. So DU really opened up and exposed me to a lot of other influences that I wouldn't have had had I not happened upon it. I mean, I'm very grateful for, for what DU has brought me, whether it's the people or whether it's the site itself. Do you watch your stats? No. Have you ever? No. Never? I, I tell you, I used to watch mine when I first joined. Fucking hell. You know, who, how many people read this? How many people liked it? All right. Close your eyes. Webmaster standing in front of you. Describe her. <laughs> Blue, short. There's my description. <laughs> well, I see you're not going to get dragged into that one then. Um, all right. <laughs> well, on that note, my favorite part of the program has arrived. We'll call it How Well Do You Know Your Poetry? Uh, this is where 
I'll take two lines at random from five of your poems. Now, we've made it a fraction easier this time around and invite you to either tell the title or recite the next two lines. All right. Is that clear enough? No. <laughs> I'll write them and forget them. Uh, all right. Well, we'll see. First one. Folding back the corner, quilted puffy bits, patchwork patterns in soft repose. Yeah, that one's not that old, really. All right. Um, I, I'll give you one clue, and that's the title of the poem is A Time. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> uh, 532. That's one of those ones I wrote about wintertime, isn't it? Yep. All right, next one. Scratching at the ears of giants, we whisper, can you see me? Oh, wow, that's an old one. I haven't a clue. <laughs> that one's old. Yeah, as soon as I write them, they're gone. It's called uh, Groundhog Day. I, the chill of green, fit fine to forest floors, the bed of moss under mother of pear crush. I'm not going to get any of these. Uh, I feel like I'm fucking it. twisting a knife in your stomach or something here. Uh, of Moss and Pride. Okay, uh, I think we've established that you don't really know your poetry at all, so that's that's okay. Um, that's, I write, and, but Eamon, I, I tell you what, I mean, that's the honest God truth. I write something, and I'm done with it. I yeah. fit into that moment and that energy that I love or, or that brings me whatever I need to call myself centered for that moment i write it and then i'm done with it it's out of me and i'm ready to move on to the next thing now i read earlier in the week fairy tale in new york was banned by dj um in the uk he says some of his lines are disgraceful well i suppose that's up for debate um do you think art has any right to overstep boundaries Absolutely. It should always overstep boundaries. The thing I, I think about, you know, about music is that it's it's so widely listened to and so, wide, you know, revered and stuff like that, that I don't know, is, is there some kind of uh, line in the sand, however, however kind of, however uh, light it might be, you know, but I mean, I don't know. Uh, now, I'm not saying there's a right answer or a wrong answer to that question, you know, but it, it I, I'm, I'm not sure it's a, 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 as black and white as as, as it sh- could should be, you know. Stand-up comedians certainly take uh, a journey past the frontiers. I, and that song in particular, you know, Fairy Tale New York, uh, I, I think a lot of the, what people are offended by or take offence to is the word faggots, you know, to, that, that he used it uh, in it. He certainly says it uh, or sings it the two of them in a kind of a tone that could easily be taken as degrading, you know. It's not really black and white for me, you know, not really. Uh, but I think you're right, though, you know, I think certainly art. It, well, stand-up comedians certainly take a, a journey past the frontiers. The frontiers. Uh, I know you're a fan of them. Uh, I think it was a, st- a stand-up comic, comic who was the first person to ever make fun of uh, a royal uh, in front of people and get away with it without having their head chopped off, you know? 
Um, advice for new members? Well, don't worry too much about other people. Read and get influenced by other people. But don't let them change your heart. What makes a poem? I'd say feeling more than anything. Emotion is a better word to say. All right. Good. Good. Um, okay. I asked you at the top of the top of the show to pick out your favorite poem and I'll read this out with it. So what what'll it be? I don't have favorite poems. I'm supposed to pick out a favorite poem of mine. I don't yeah. read myself. I I I read your the very latest one then. How about that? That should be your favorite. On behalf of myself and my colleagues, I thank you most much for coming on and having a chatter. Uh, you are a true legend. Um, and fucking well done, man. Um, and thanks. Thanks for having me on, Eamon. I'm glad uh, to be here with you guys. Uh, and I'm glad you volunteered yourself for Risky Christmas in the near future. <laughs> Maybe one when my brain's working a little more clear. Bag of Bones by Sol Dertiz. Fold winter's breath beneath hidden valley. Beats break like no other across the literal back. We rode the even tide, smokes in and skin. Lost indentations that no longer remain pierce the lonely mind. Solomon statues, ornament objects shine. To shine in the dark with widening iris, shook across her hybrid flesh. Every bump rises, beast of two backs. Painted artisan, aplomb, kiss me empty with once upon a time, boss. The cretin emerges, the cretin emerges swallowed in sweat, a token of appreciation. Where Mary says, together, O Mary, mother of God, yes, will that fills the belly burning hot, were it not easily remembered. Backboard beats and giggling, where the storm ragged, the eyes shifted from beauty mark bones bag of certain dust dry over many fires we've watched the flames rise orange red and yellow close the oven door fading blue the window remains turns eventual ash deep underground poetry dot com <laughs>
That was DU member Andy J. Hale there with his song Turn Away that you can find over on SoundCloud. As usual, links to all songs and poems mentioned in the show will be listed in the show notes. Risky Quizness. Good afternoon and welcome to Risky Quizness, the quiz which is sure to cast out on many, many things. I'm Eamon Sose and I'll be your host for the duration. On my left, the current Risky Quizness champion, our very own, we call her the voice of a million angels, but never, never to her face, because she'd probably headbutt us both to death. So, Missy Demeanor it is. Hello, lady, you're very welcome. And what will your buzzer sound like? My buzzer today is this little whistle. There you go. Oh, all right, right. And on my right, the Londoner in it, a man who's responsible for painting self-portraits of his large brain onto various buildings around the city. Absolute <laughs> genius. You'd never get caught for it. It's the man with a plan, Ethan. Boy Browns, you're very welcome. And give us a belt of your blizzard. Well, hopefully you can hear it, but it's uh, my barbering uh, clippers, so... All right. <laughs> Take what you want from that. <laughs> <laughs> or not we'll start funny enough with round one aptly titled universally challenged so we'll deal with writers and writing according to popular legend what did william worldsworth wander lonely as in the first draft of his classic poem and this is a multiple choice so i'll give you a goat b cow or c worm you make him fair one no, no, it's oh, not fuck. a one. Uh, that's all you there. Uh, Missy, you have a goat or a cow there to get. See, I thought it was cloud. Is it not? No, in the, in the first draft before it was changed, it was it was something first before it was changed to uh, cloud. Cow. It was a cow, yeah. yeah. Oh. Uh, apparently, it was his sister Dorothy who influenced the change from cow to cloud. Uh, I looked, but sadly, there was no mention of what strain Dorothy had smoked. He was born in British India in the middle of the 19th century. Educated in England, the staunch supporter of imperialism, he was the first English poet to be awarded a Nobel Prize in literature and could be said to bake 
exceedingly good cake. Uh, you know what? I fucking knew you'd get that one. All right, yeah. <laughs> well, bitch loves a cake, do you know what I mean? Yeah, Rudyard, Rudyard Kipling. Uh, hang on, I better put your score down there. Which of these Shakespeare's played played first? Taming of the Shrew, Hamlet, Macbeth. Lizzie? Taming of the Shrew. I'm going to take that, only because I didn't actually write the answer down. I was, I was thinking... <laughs> Was be a little bit more confident. So, all right, fair enough. Um, <laughs> fingers on the buzzers, but don't use them because you get an individual question here. I'll give you both some lines of a poem. You give me the author. Missy, we'll take you first. Uh, so here goes. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may treat me in the very dirt, but still, like dust, I rise. Oh, fuck, I know who that is. Uh, <laughs> no, no, you can't say this now, Ethan. Is no, no. <laughs> I'm dying, is though. It, oh, is it Mayor uh, Angelou? No, it is. It is Mayor Angelou. Thank yeah, fuck for that. <laughs> Pressure. Uh, yeah, one of two poets in history to read a poem during the presidential inauguration. Won a Grammy for an audio recording of that poem. Anybody? Anybody know? I'll give you a point. Um... Insane in the membrane. No, I don't know. Uh, on the post of the morning, best spoken word category. She also worked with both Malcolm X and Dr. King before they were shot. So take from that what you will. Ethan, your lines. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul had spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Fucking hell. I don't even know. <laughs> Um, yeah, I have no fucking clue. <laughs> uh, it, it, she's running away with this, Ethan. You know, you have to stop this. You know, wake the fuck up. Come on now. Come on. Missy, open to you there. Oh, God, I have no idea. Even um, she doesn't fucking know. Yeah, I don't know either. Right. Well, that was Edgar Allan Poe's uh, The Raven. So oh know. my god <laughs> <laughs> fucking hell like you know right okay uh <laughs> too early <laughs> that's my excuse uh in 1849 poe left new york for a visit to richmond he never made it uh it said he turned up in front of a baltimore bar deliriously raving and wearing clothes that didn't fit uh was rushed to hospital and died a few days later never to explain what had happened to him uh, bonus point if either of you can name Poe's arch nemesis, if you could believe there was one in poetry, and there was. Oh my god, shit. Um, uh, first name Rufus. Oh my god, I knew I should have looked up Poe. Um, looked, looked up which hole? Um, <laughs> that's what it sounded like with your British accent. I said Poe. I thought you said Ho, looked up Poe. Um, <laughs> Ethan, that's you. No, I don't know. I was doing that just to or wind you up. <laughs> uh, all right, Rufus Griswold. Yeah, uh, apparently after Poe died, Griswold wrote a, a, a thing about him. You know, uh, really scathing yoke. Uh, final lines are open to both of you. So uh, if, if either of you figure it this out, although to be quite honest with you, I'm not fucking gonna hold my breath. You know. <laughs> 
this is the intelligence level that you're dealing with right now. <laughs> exactly. See, this is how intelligent I thought the two of you were. So it's kind of a, uh, what would you call it, a compliment, you know? Hashtag early. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood and I, I took the one less travelled by. Uh, Missy? Robert Frost. Robert Frost, yeah. yeah. Robert Frost, uh, probably best known for his sheer coldness and affinity to killing flowers. Wait, that's Jack, Jack Frost. Jack Frost. Um, <laughs> name two poets whose first and last names start with the same letter. Take your time. Oh, my God. Fucking hell. Um... No, he wasn't a poet. Um... All right, I'm going to say... An author, then. Author. Literature, poetry, either one. Uh, I don't know. Missy. William Wordsworth. And oh, Walt, Walt Whitman. Oh, fuck. Well, how did you them? That, that was <laughs> fantastic stuff. Fantastic well, stuff. It was, it was like divine intervention. <laughs> True or false? I'll give you both one each individually. <laughs> Love how we're getting singled out. <laughs> I'll tell you what, man, that has to be the best fucking chat up line I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> sure or false? I'll give you about one each individually. So, Missy. <laughs> in the story uh, Sleeping Beauty, in the original story of Sleeping Beauty, uh, Sleeping Beauty gave birth to two children before she woke up. True or false? Oh, um... I'm going to go true. It is true. In the original story, yeah, she had two kids. God love her, he must have tried everything but kiss her on the fucking lips. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ethan, for you, as part of her hygiene regime, Anne Sexton had separate toothbrushes for her top and bottom sets of teeth. True or false? Oh, for fuck's sake. I'm going to go with false. And you're going to get a fucking... Bo- well... Yeah, well done, that's a, that's a point. We're on the scoreboard. Okay, well, at least I know about Mama Sexton, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that before with me. <laughs> and finally, for our university challenge round, what, buzz in when you know, what was the second ghost to appear in A Christmas Carol? Missy. <laughs> the ghost of Christmas present. It, it was. All right, which leaves us to tally the scores, and it looks like both Ethan and Missy missed an equal amount of school. Right, so, <laughs> on to round two, I am Smarticus, a round of general knowledge and current affairs. Question one, name the current British cabinet. I guess, of course, it's highly doubtful the current British cabinet could actually name the current British cabinet. So, question one, which Royal said recently in a BBC interview he took himself and his family to a pizza joint in Woking for dinner. That be Missy. That's Prince Andrew. It it, it was Prince Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, went for pizza. Uh, Prince Andrew, one-time favourite son of the Queen, had his birthday party cancelled this month by the same Queen. A man who, while driving around these days is presumably avoiding tunnels like his life depended on it. <laughs> All right. 
excluding the home nations, name three members of the British Commonwealth. Oh, fucking hell. Who do we own? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Australia. Go. Missy, I'm, that's you. I was going to say Australia. Um, yeah. India. All right. And I don't know. Who else do we fucking own? Gibraltar. <laughs> Uh, there's a few. That's, uh, I was going to say yeah. the Caribbean. Yeah, uh, if you, you know the Commonwealth Games, everyone who fucking goes there, more or less. I so, think you're <laughs> underestimating my interest in sport. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who killed Al Baghdadi? Oh god, I don't even know that one. Who killed him? Yeah. Well, I mean, which 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 countries? Uh, oh. Army, I suppose. Missy. America. UK, US Special Forces, yeah. yeah. I'd also have accepted uh, the Russians, the Iraqis, uh, plus everyone and their mother, al-Baghdadi, <laughs> a man pronounced dead more times than Bruce Forsyth. UK High Security Prison holds Julia Assange. Um, also known for holding Ronnie Biggs, Charles Bronson, Ian Huntley, and Jeffrey Archer. Um, Ethan. Belmarsh. It is Belmarsh. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah. uh, for a bonus point, can you tell me uh, how many years might Assange face in prison if extradited to the US? <laughs> All right. 48. Point five. Oh, you're nearly there. It's actually 175 years. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a decent indictment on his health, I suppose, if nothing else. Uh, which military organization celebrated 70 years of existence recently? This is multiple choice, so I'll give you United Nations, NATO, or the White Helmets. Ethan. United Nations? No. Oh, no. you, Missy. Uh, NATO. It is NATO. Uh, all over the UK all week. All of them. Uh, point if you can say what the abbreviation means. North Atlantic something organization. Something. Right. Um, oh, this one's going to be really easy. What peoples were involved in the march of return earlier this year? Oh, who's, who, right. Who's marching and who's angry? I think Middle East, if that's going to boil it down anywhere. Al-Qaeda. It's actually the Palestinians. Oh. An over-optimistic crowd of Palestinians took it upon themselves to march towards Israel, armed with flags and banners. On seeing the danger, the snipers killed 60 of the marchers, women, children and medics. The dangerous ones, obviously. Um, A point for the name of the Israeli Prime Minister. I don't know. Malcolm X. <laughs> I just have uh, Yahoo here, so it's uh, Benjamin Yenton Yahoo. I actually have Yahoo in, in brackets, so I would have accepted that. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, which ex vice president of America recently caused a bit of a stir when his talk about his hairy legs resurfaced from 2017? Multiple choice. So is it Joe Biden, Al Gore, or Mike Pence? Uh, Ethan, that's you. Mike Pence? No, it's not Mike Pence. It's up with you. Uh, oh, <laughs> fuck's sake. <laughs> um, 
I'll go. It's, uh, no, you could have uh, still been. Uh, oh, shit sticks. Uh, yeah, he called over and he, he said something like, uh, yeah, when I'm in the swimming pool, the kids used to come and stroke my legs and make my hair go down because it would, or something, you know. And he Who said, the fuck? Who the fuck is stroking somebody's hairy legs? Can I just Yeah, that's, that's a bit strange, you know. Yeah, yeah. What's the nearest city to Bristol? Ethan. What? That's oh. not, no, that's not a city. No. Uh, I can tell you it's in Wales. You see? Cardiff. It is, yeah. Cardiff. Uh, uh, yeah. Oh, well. is, uh... I can test that because I think Wales is the closest city to Bristol. Right then, your contest is <laughs> <really early>. debatable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. I just come back and it said, go fuck yourself, Missy. <laughs> <laughs> no, that wasn't me saying that. That was the computer. The computer said no. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you can tell the computer to shove it up his ass, right? Who was the leader of France? This is the question. Multiple, multiple choice. Is it Putin, Merkel, Macron? Putin, Merkel, Macron. That's you, Missy. Macron. It is Macron, yeah. yeah. Uh, he was on the news yesterday uh, putting Trump down. Him and the Canadian President Trudeau. Is that his name? Trudeau. Yeah. And uh, Boris Johnson, of course, treated him talking about him behind his back and he fucked off early. Trump did. Uh, took a took a bit of a took a bit of um, offence to it. And he came on the news. He did, I swear to God. Had a press conference and said, "Well, your man Trudeau, he's a very nice man, but he's he's two faced, uh, and he doesn't pay his two percent." So there you go. Finally, uh, for this round, uh, true or false, Switzerland is a member of the European Union. Ethan, that's you. In case you didn't know. Do you say Do you say Switzerland? I did say Switzerland. Uh, I'm gonna say true. Uh, would you like to phone a friend? <laughs> no. Would you? <laughs> will I? Will I make it simpler? No. Okay. Uh, you're wrong, Missy. Yeah. I thought so. <laughs> Is it false by any chance? Uh, funny enough, now it's false. I'm not going to give you that though, but uh, <laughs> I just wanted to see. Right. Uh, let's have a look at the numbers. And we're looking at, well, it's not too bad. One, two, three, four, five, six. Missy, you have six. Ethan, you have two. Uh, <laughs> you can catch up here. There's 10 questions left. I mean, you know, you could, if, you know, you're sure you don't want to have, I don't know, coffee or cocaine or something? <laughs> no, thanks. Uh, kind of Red Bull in a dream. I'm doing um, a Russell, I'm doing a Russell brand. Right, uh, final round is kind of worms where we tell them to all things deep underground. Um, right, so question one. What year did DU make its comeback? Because it was there. Right, that, that was, yeah, I'm going to say, Ethan, that was you. 2009. It was. It is 2009. Well done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> And I came in 2017, I might add. Right. Wow. right. 
what's, what's even worse is that we've just done like the 10 year anniversary episode and I couldn't work that out. You tell that should be pretty easy for you. Vits, I put you to shame. All right. Well, if you thought that was easy, you won't think this was. Um, what I want you to do here is name profiles in alphabetical order, starting with A. Uh, DU profiles. Okay, starting with A. I'll actually start um, with A. So, Ethan, you come in with B. Uh, Missy, you come in with uh, whatever comes after B. Abracadabra. Not allowed to name myself, am I? Um. <laughs> well, same profile, yeah, you can if you like. You know, you have boy brains. <laughs> okay, boy brains. <laughs> All right, you see. Circus monkey. <laughs> All right, Ethan. D. Um. Uh. Oh, what the fuck's his name? Um. <laughs> Let you start with a D. Uh, Daniel Christensen. Oh, uh, Missy. Oh, hey, um, no, I can't get one. Right. Uh, Ethan, you get that then. Uh, if you can name another tree, if you can go another tree, Ethan, I'll give you another point as well. All right. So um, start on um, E, I think. E, is it E, Missy? Yeah, start on yeah. E. Oh, E. I can't think of anyone with E. Um, e. Who do I know has got E? I don't know. That sounds <laughs> wrong. That. <laughs> uh, I can't think of anyone with E. All right. Yeah, all right. Don't worry about that. you got a point anyway. Um, to the nearest two, what's the most profiles I've seen logged in at one time? Missy. 26. No, higher. Ethan. Full A. Higher. Missy. Fuck. Fucking hell. <laughs> what time was this? Um, six, 63. Lower. Fif- <laughs> uh, 55. It's actually 54, yeah, so not, yeah, you get that. Um, I'll give you five bonus points if you can name them. Fuck <laughs> off. Oh, uh, <laughs> I don't uh, know. Name three competitions currently running in the comps. Uh, Ethan, that's you. Minimalist comp. Right. Uh, no, Santa's Naughty Little Helper. Right. And... Nearly there, man. Uh, One more. It's in my head, so I can't think. Um, I don't know, Secret Santa counts. Oh, it does, yeah. It's a competition, isn't it? Yeah. No, I couldn't think if it was competition or speakeasy. It's a competition. Oh. And you can enter this competition by going to the comps. <laughs> <laughs> it's six points to five. Missy, you haven't scored a point all this round now. I mean, it's disappointing. You know, I, am. I have to say. <laughs> uh, name. I just said that. So, five. Name three past moderators. Moderators. <laughs> Missy, that's in you. Or are you? Oh. Um, Mike, the engineer. Yeah. Seeking Kate. Yeah. And um, what the fuck is his name? The uh, Hades. That's yeah. I'll take them. Yeah. 
<laughs> oh, uh, to the nearest two years, what year did the Ask a Question tread appear? Missy. 2011. Yeah, I'm going to accept that. I haven't actually got the answer written down. <laughs> to the nearest two years, you're, you're right. I know that. Uh, uh, Ask a Question tread was introduced by Poppy Banks which has grown to the longest running and largest tread on the EU. So, Poppy. Who is or was the director of Haku Pond Group? The what group? The Haku Pond. Haku Pond. Um, I'll make it multi... Uh, multi... multi. Uh, Missy. Is it um, Jade Pandora? It is not. Oh. Uh, I'll make it multi altern um is it um is it Harry or would it be Harry? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Ethan, that's you. Harry Well well done, Ethan. <laughs> oh, okay, there's two in it. Had no there's, choice. <laughs> there's two in it and there is one two three questions left name seven countries which have gifted du some members oh missy get in there the flu. was it seven countries it was seven countries right okay um america okay that's one right america britain ireland uh germany australia India and Portugal. That's seven. Well done. Right. I'm a little bit shocked because I didn't think uh, you had a name seven actual countries. So. Uh, <laughs> <coughs> I can even so I, write my name and I know how to tie my shoes as well. Who won spoken word poet of the month this month? Ethan, that's you. Ah, have <laughs> Well done. Finally, Ethan, to the nearest couple of months, when did Missy join DU? Yeah, you can compare. Month. April. Yeah, but and year as well. April, <laughs> April 2009. Yeah. What? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's not 2009. No? No. It's not 2009, no, no. Um, right then. Uh, take another guess. We'll keep April, because that's not too far, I don't think. Is it? Is it I don't know. Uh, I, th- I think I've, I've got a date in mind when I think it was. <laughs> but... I thought it was April 2009. Oh, my God. Um, 2008? No, because that's when... He wasn't even no, you're kind of going. Old. Yeah, yeah, you're getting colder rather than kind of hotter. What? 2010. This is fucking ridiculous. Um. <laughs> yeah, you were nearly there with 2010. If you just went up one, I think. 2011. I, I think so, Missy. Is it? I believe it was June 2011. Right, well, that'll do. That'll do. Oh dear. No, I tell you. Just so you know, and there's no pressure. Uh, 
it's like head and head at the moment. And there's one question left, and it's for you, Missy. Okay. To the nearest couple of months, when did Eden join to you? Oh. Uh. <laughs> I'm going to say 2017. Right, because he only sat there a few minutes. Uh, yeah, you've had the easy 20. Should we try a month as well? Um, August. Uh, all right. No. Ethan. Yep. Oh, he's shaving, right? or, or did he actually buzz in? I'm not sure. He... No, I was just, I was just playing with my clipper. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, well, Sunday. is that right? August, August 2017. No. Oh. It's Ju- It's July. 2017. Well, the nearest couple of months, though. Okay, nearest couple of months, yeah, okay. <laughs> <sighs> that was close now, I have to say. I'll tell you what, um, no, I just uh, have to add them up a few times just to make sure I'm not, you know, you know. Uh, no, yeah, is he uh, with with nine points out of, I was going to say 30, but I mean, I, I threw in so many bonus points there. There's probably about 200 points you could have each got there. <laughs> <on that. laughs> Uh, so nine points, well done. Um, Ethan, eight points for you, well done. Um, well, that was hard, now I have to say. But... <laughs> Ethan, <laughs> control yourself. Sorry, <laughs> this is England. Are you saying it's a shaver? But you know, I don't know. Right, <laughs> <laughs> went over. Ethan, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Missy. You're nine, Ethan, you're eight. Missy, that means you've won. And you go on to take on, I believe, Lord Vidax in next month's Risky Quizness. And that will be hosted by our very own Daniel Christensen. So, y'all look forward to that. So, that means, Missy, you're still the reigning champion of Risky Quizness. Um, Ethan, hard luck there, you know, there wasn't much in it. Um, There actually wasn't much in any of it. Really. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's been great to have you on. I hope you come back again um, at some stage. Um, thank you both for coming along and playing along. And next time, maybe we should do it in the afternoon rather than first. <laughs> <laughs> the reading list with Missy Demina. Hello to you all out there tuning in to hear another fantastic interview offered up by our very own members. This month on the reading list, we have a bit of a treat for you, and that treat comes in the shape of our very own Josh. Member since 2nd of February 2017, vocal aficionado and author of over 200 poems here on Deep Underground Poetry. And it just so happens that Josh is with us today to talk to us all about his poetry, which we cannot wait to hear. So, Josh... How are you today? And thank you for joining us. I'm good. Thank you, Missy. Um, the olive harvest is done. We got 72 litres of beautiful virgin olive oil in the can, uh, which we shared around friends who, yeah, we shared it around the friends who helped us pick all the olives. Uh, the rainy season is on us now after the long dry summer, and that's filling up the wells. So that's good. And I've got a new poetry book to read. So that's even better. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a pretty amazing time that you're having over there. <laughs> so I understand that you're living over in Portugal now. 
I mean, can you tell us a little bit about life away from England? Sure. Um, after our youngest had left home, which was back in 2007, uh, me and my wife, Veronica, we thought to ourselves, OK, we've turned 50 now. Uh, what are we going to do with our one wild and precious life? And uh, a year later, our Portugal adventure began. And uh, we live in what's called the green heart of Portugal, which is mid-north. It's on a level with Coimbra, which is the old capital before it moved to Lisbon. Mm -hmm. And we're about halfway between the Atlantic coast and the Spanish border. Uh, we have about a hectare of land uh, with 70 olive trees, lots of fruit trees, cork oaks, a little vineyard with 250 vines, Merlot and Shiraz. But essentially, we're both writers uh, and life is much slower here, which suits us both fine. Living in a different culture and language, of course, can be a challenge, but I feel it helps keep those brain cells firing. And um, we also had a huge firestorm a couple of years ago, which burned 5,000 square kilometres of central Portugal, uh, which was a defining moment. But we saved our house, thankfully, um, but it triggered a, a kind of possibility of moving on. And uh, now that we have four grandchildren, which we didn't when we have any when we came here, we're thinking about moving back to the UK, um, but we can't do it till we've sold up here. So that's Portugal. I should imagine that the weather is much better over there as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. It, yeah, it gets a little too hot in summer and it, we've just had three weeks of fairly solid rain, uh, which is great because it fills up the wells, as I said, but um, but now I can look through the window and the sun is shining. So that's nice. Oh, lovely. Well, much better than it is here today. So I envy that. So could you tell us a little bit about how your journey with deep underground poetry began? I started taking myself seriously as a poet about 12 years ago. So I was writing, 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 reading, reading, reading and spending a small fortune on poetry books. And I also studied form as well as just reading poems. So I read uh, and studied Mary Oliver's A Poetry Handbook, uh, Ruth Padel's 52 Ways of Looking at a Poem. And uh, the best one I, I in introduction was really Stephen Fry's The Ode Less Travelled, which is a great witty book to introduce one to the world of poetry. But basically, I started um, started off knowing bugger all about poetry and I had to educate myself from scratch. And then about three years ago, I thought it was time to put myself out and about a bit. So I looked for a suitable poetry website. Everything I found was too fussy and did my head in. Uh, I don't like staring at computer screens at the best of times. But then I chanced upon DUP. I can't actually remember exactly how, but it was by far and away the most user friendly poetry website. So after a couple of months of umming and ahhing, I, I signed up. Well, that sounds uh, a lot like how a lot of people came to DUP in that it's quite by accident, but meant to be, probably. Yeah, yeah, I think that's quite possible. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, Josh, I mean, it feels like a very transparent name. And I understand that you use your picture as your avatar also. I mean, how important is transparency and being yourself on your DU account to you? Very important. Yeah, my name is Joshua and I was amazed that Joshua is still available 
as a username and uh, the pick is me. So, yeah, what you see is what you get. Transparency, interpreting it in the sense of honesty, uh, I feel is critical to the poet. And um, it re reminds me very much of uh, an issue with W.H. Auden and his poem September 1, 1939. And you have here a top level poet at the outbreak of World War Two, and people are looking to him to give them some sense of meaning to help cope with the horrors of war that are about to happen. And especially since the um, senseless slaughter of World War One is still fresh in people's minds. And Auden, he writes this poem, September 1, 1939, and then he later dismisses it as, quote, dishonest, a forgery. And he made his publisher add a note that it was, quote, trash he was ashamed to have written, which I think is a really interesting comment about the huge importance of transparency, because transparency enables people to connect with one's poetry at a deeper level. And the more honesty in the writer the deeper a poem can reach into the hearts of the readers. Anyway, that's my theory on transparency and honesty, a lesson from W.H. Auden. Well, talking of um, transparency and, and poetry, of course, <laughs> if you don't mind, I'm going to move on to your first poem here, uh, which mm -hmm. I understand you're going to read for us live, which is a nice treat. I am too. The poem title is Word Momentum from 2007. One word, once heard, suggests the next, invites companions to our harmonious tale. Each word, being a symbol, carries a whole story and penetrates the veil. When words play together, they dance, transforming into a different life to live. As they reach for the stars, you can hear whole symphonies and parallel universes are created. Wonderfully read, of course. Um, it's, it's, it's a lovely poem, but this poem seems um, very much to be a bit of an overture regarding your own experience with writing. I mean, could you tell me a little bit more about your personal relationship with poetry? I was brought up in a household when I wasn't away at boarding school, that is, where my mother would be forever quoting bits of poetry, what she called ditties and doggerel, as well as chunks of Shakespeare. Uh, she had been a keen amateur dramatics person, and I have a newspaper clip of hers from the Liverpool Echo, where a local critic remarked she had promise as an actress. Um, anyway, that, that was probably my first relationship with poetry uh, from my mother. For me, the arrival at poetry as my main thing, which is how I now consider it, um, was the culmination really of a 30 year search for my true vocation, if I can put it that way. I've worked previously as a coal mining engineer and a production engineer in textiles. I've been a house parent looking after my children whilst doing a PhD. I've been an academic for 10 years and I'm the inventor, designer, maker of unique hand weaving looms, um, wow. none of which particularly pointed towards poetry. <laughs> yeah, it's true. 
Uh, you can look up yarn shifter on the internet and you'll find me, the yarn shifter hand weaving loom. But none of these things particularly pointed towards poetry as a vocation. And now I consider my relationship with poetry is both a matter of psychological survival as well as my next career path, if I can dare to say that. Well, dare to dream, I think, definitely. I'm drawn to the third stanza in which you say, when words play together, they dance, transforming into a different life to live. I mean, how important is imagination? It's it's vital. And you could also add in intuition, inspiration, soul, will, instinct, intellect. You know, the, these are all parts of the mind that come into play, uh, whether I'm aware of it or not. And then we have our own experience, which works as a kind of lens or filter through which we or I test the honesty of what I'm trying to write about. So I ask myself, how true to experience is what I'm writing about, which has been colored by my imagination? And the reason why this question is important to me is because words have immense power due to their symbolic nature. Um, after all, be before the alphabet was invented, words were depicted, you know, as symbols, pictograms, hieroglyphs, characters mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. And just because words are now depicted in terms of letters of the alphabet, it doesn't mean they have lost any of their symbolic power. And humans are nothing if not creatures who are motivated by, and I have to say manipulated by, by symbolism whether it be a national flag, a political slogan or a poem. So as I see it, poets have a very strong remit to use words carefully, uh, both to uplift and inspire people to open new horizons, uh, as well as to challenge closed minds. And that's the bit in the poem I think you picked out when words play together, they dance, transforming into a different life to live. And implying that poets should ask themselves, what is the transformed life I wish to cultivate through my poem? And to do that, you do need imagination, intuition, inspiration, and those sort of faculties of the mind, which is then combined with your own personal experience. You need the whole team. You need everything on board, the whole team. So if poets have to be careful how they exercise the symbolic power of words. I mean, what parts of the human experience should poets aim for? Well, poets should aim for gaps in the human experience that we easily miss, or as William Blake put it very eloquently in 1803, I've got written down here, uh, to see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. So poetry's task is to tease out the mystical, the not quite reachable, those things which are just beyond our perception and lay it before us on the page. And I like to think of it as a communication of spirit to spirit. And to me, this is hugely important because poetry then becomes a vehicle by which the world can be saved. Now, that is a big statement. <laughs> Poetry much. becomes a vehicle by which the world can be saved. Um, <laughs> but I'll give, I'll give an example. Suppose a poet suffers grief from the loss of a loved one. 
and the poet processes their grief until they come to a place of healing and peace within themselves about their loss. Then they write a poem dealing with grief from that place of healing within themselves. Now, to the extent that healing is completed in the poet, it becomes incorporated into the poem they write as a kind of energy footprint, as I like to see it. So the poem can then become a catalyst for healing in the reader who might also be going through a time of grief. And for me, this is the absolute crux of poetry fulfilling its highest calling, because then poems at their best become like healing orbs transferred through time and space and um, popping up in unexpected places to heal a troubled mind by someone who just happens to read them. And we are gifted by a treasure trove, an Aladdin's cave of poetry stretching over centuries. And a lot of it's available on the internet. And I think that's a big privilege. That's what I think uh, Auden uh, labeling his poem, Dishonest, a forgery, what he was getting at. He was aware of his responsibility to millions at the outbreak of war and people were looking to him and future generations facing war. And he felt that something in his poem wasn't totally honest, that some integrity was missing. Uh, I, there was something in him about war, some fears maybe, that still needed processing and healing in himself. And to that extent, possibly, the purity and the healing power of the poem was compromised. So, yeah, poetry should aim for these little gaps in human experience, and the poet needs to explore them as much as they can in their own experience, and then write from a place of healing, if at all possible. And that's what gives poetry power. And I think within that, um, one thing I hear in a lot of comments on people's work is that people shouldn't have to work too hard to try and work out the meaning of a poem. But in terms of imagination, especially if you're trying to communicate a message that's going to heal other people, that isn't always the case. It's not always lateral. So do you believe that a poem needs to be straightforward in order to connect with the reader? I would say that poets like Simon Armitage, our new poet laureate, great, uh, Imtiaz Darker, who might have been our new poet laureate, uh, if she hadn't let it be known she didn't want to be, Poets like Robert Frost, Mary Oliver, they are successful because their language is simple and accessible and yet is still profound. Uh, you don't have to work hard to understand what they are on about in terms of basic language comprehension. You rarely have to look up a word and the grammar is usually quite simple. And this leaves the reader with a first impact where their minds are free to get something out of the poem at whatever level. It doesn't matter. What matters is that the reader receives an immediate sense of success on reading the poem instead of being made to feel stupid. And so simple language enables a positive experience on first reading. And then the reader is possibly motivated to return to the poem again and again, where the deeper meaning of the poem can gradually reveal itself in what the reader now experiences as a positive learning environment, if I can use that phrase. 
So to answer your question, the, the poet needs to be aware that the reader needs to experience a sense of success on the first read of the poem. And the poet must use language conducive to that, which usually means simple, accessible and straightforward language. Yeah. And I'm so happy that you're of that frame of mind. A couple of months ago, we had Hemi on the show, um, who was talking in, in his interview about straightforward language and not having words in just because they just because they're a good looking word they need to work for the story mm -hmm. and that has always stuck mm -hmm. with me so I'm so happy yeah. that there's someone else out there <laughs> so moving on to your second poem now um yeah which also uses straightforward language <laughs> thank you very much so I'm going to yeah. play this for everyone at home now the day the drone dropped in for tea a poem written and spoken by Joshua Bond the day the drone dropped in for tea at number 32, the women gladly chattering prepared the Sunday stew. The table set, the men passed time, played football with their sons, when someone in the distance heard a deathly kind of hum. The baby cried and auntie came to cheer its tiny frame, and all the family went inside, said Grace in Allah's name. The tea was poured, the stew was put, a meal for all to share. The sound got louder in the sky, and Granny looked bit scared. The whistling noise grew louder still, it flew towards the roof. The adults froze, the children stared, confused by crazy truths. It happened all so fast, you know, came crashing through the ceiling, and splintered bits of tin and stone that sent the stew all reeling. Mother screamed and grabbed the baby. Miss Al said, Oh, hi, you're on the list as terrorists. I'll blow you up sky high. But first I bring a word of peace. We're doing this for you. For high-tech might is always right. We trust you'll see our view. We have a strategy, you know, of winning hearts and minds. We're sure you will agree with us. Our actions are so kind. The father said, You idiot. We ain't done nothing wrong. You're terrorists, the missile spoke and sang its marching song. And Uncle said, a load of bunk. Your leaders must be thick. Abdul the terrorist down the road at number 46. Oops, said the missile. Too late now. In a mo I shall explode. Kill you all in a flash of heat, for that's my programmed mode. Mother looked faint, clutched the baby. Missile exploded. Bang! Up the stats of collateral damage, the heavenly angels sang. The pilot smiled from far away, said, Good, target destroyed. Got up for a pee and a smoke, his mind in a mental void. And chatting to friends, he said, How swell, our planes stay in the hangar. These drones fly hundreds of miles away, with pilots in no danger. The neighbours came running to tear at the rubble, but no one survived, not a one, not at all. Except the young baby, who'd lost both her legs, and who died in a hospital ward. The brood of vipers, speaking metaphorically, practice firing missiles on Afghans having tea. They say it is the distanced way that politics has to be. They do this in the name of God and also you and me. This firing missiles from drones 
on Afghans having tea. Now, I've done a little bit of research into some facts and figures that shows the utter truth weaved into this poem. And from the start of the war in Afghanistan, 2001 to present day, there have been over 31,000 civilian deaths, with a further 30,000 civilians having been injured. So including civilians, militants and soldiers, this brings the death toll to around 111,000 that have been killed absolutely needlessly during this conflict. And these are really horrifying facts and figures and frankly make me a little bit ashamed to be human. So can you tell us exactly what it was that drove you to write this poem in particular? Yeah. Um, Essentially, I wrote the poem to give voice to civilian victims, those people who are casually dismissed by the military as mere collateral damage, which always winds me up. Um, Why I felt I needed to do this rests on two things. Um, One is my personal journey dealing with what I call intergenerational war trauma. Um, my father was in World War Two, and I had one grandfather in World War One. And when that grandfather died, I was about seven years old. And I felt on the day that he died, as if my mind had suddenly been burdened with an unreasonable fear of death. And I became a very frightened and reclusive little boy. And it took me decades to unravel what the hell was going on. Um, And it's only recently, I feel, and I am 63 now, that I feel I am free to have a life of my own, no longer dogged by the shadow of the two world wars. And I I sense myself as having just reached the starting grid of life, putting it bluntly. Mm -hmm. And the journey to resolve it all uh, has been a long and tedious and sometimes a very painful journey. And it's one reason that drove me Uh, to write not only this anti-war poem, but I've actually got a whole book full of them. Um, The second reason, not surprisingly, perhaps, is that the war industry itself is my personal bete noire. It's a two trillion dollar industry. It gives higher than average returns for the shareholders. And I have to say, it's, it's very blunt, but killing people is an extremely profitable business blowing up countries and then getting contracts to rebuild the infrastructure you've just blown up is predatory capitalism at its worst. And most conundrums about the way the world is can usually be answered by this old dictum, follow the money. And war is no different in this respect. Um, Within the war industry, my particular disgust is for drone warfare which has expanded massively under Obama. Um, I don't think it was his fault. I think the technology was expanding and he just happened to be on watch uh, when it was uh, increased hugely. And drones are increasingly controlled by artificial intelligence and algorithms that are used to identify targets and suggest to the pilot, who is a computer programmer pilot thousands of miles away, to fire a missile at some target that might have a terrorist cell in it. And the actual statistics do not bear out the military narrative that gives the image, the image of surgical strikes just killing terrorists. And the numbers you quoted at the beginning 
uh, bear this out. And the, the human rights group Reprieve has, ex has examples that suggest, in general, 25 civilians and the same number again uh, are killed and the same number again are maimed for every one terrorist killed. So it's hardly surgical strikes um, just killing terrorists or neutralizing them. That's the current language. We don't kill people, we neutralize them. And since Trump got into power, the military are no longer obligated to even try to estimate civilian casualties. So all in all, I, I wrote the poem to give voice to the civilian victims and to point out that they are not mere collateral damage, but actually they're people like you and me. Definitely. And I think us here on the podcast would just like to give you the award for getting the phrase predatory capitalism into an interview, because that's not something that we've experienced before. So thank you for All that. Right. <laughs> There's a lot of documentation that suggests that America and the UK as an ally, to be fair, is actually directly responsible for the violence that is now occurring overseas. And despite the monumental death tolls, despite the predatory capitalism, despite the refugee crisis and other really sobering evidence on human suffering, how much do you think that we as human beings um, should take responsibility for the suffering that is occurring by our own doing? Um. I, I would agree with your statement about government responsibility for increased violence, or as Gandhi put it, a violent war begets a violent peace. I, I think it was whilst David Cameron was prime minister, so maybe five years ago, that I read an article that politicians were slowly recognising that Western powers blowing up the Middle East might actually increase terrorism. I mean, duh. <laughs> what is there to get? I mean, the idea that a war in Afghanistan or Libya or Yemen or Iraq or Syria is going to make Britain's streets safer from terrorists is, in my humble opinion, complete bollocks. If mm -hmm. you think about it, suppose a big foreign power from thousands of miles away started blowing up Bradford, Leeds and Manchester and claiming there were terrorist cells hidden away there. Don't you think the local people would get a little bit uppity and upset and might mm -hmm. even start thinking of fighting back. But that's exactly what Western powers are doing in the Middle East. And then our politicians are surprised that terrorism is on the increase. It's, it's you know, it's, it's just a no brainer for, for me. Um, but you mentioned about responsibility and I'm sort of taking that question as collective responsibility for suffering, which is caused in our name. And it's an interesting, but it's a very difficult issue because how do you exercise that responsibility? And that's why I think right now we see a lot of people taking to the streets. You know, we have the Gilets Jaunes in France and the big protests in Hong Kong and quite a number of mass protest movements in South American countries and elsewhere. That I can, I can see why there is that. It's like the only way that we can try and voice uh, an opinion for a better world. The, the danger always is, of course, that these protests become used as part of the controlled opposition and then used to tighten the screw on laws relating to freedom. So collective responsibility uh, for the impact of actions done in our name as a country 
is a difficult one. My personal approach is you try and live your life in such a way um, that as much as possible, it makes governments irrelevant. So in that thought of, you know, making governments irrelevant, what do you think is the role of the poet in relation to war? And I mean, other big existential questions that we're facing at the moment, like poverty and climate change and things like that. Sometimes the big existential questions of life come knocking on your door. My wife is German and her parents were teenagers during the rise of Hitler and were faced as young adults with the pressure to join the Hitler Youth Movement. And perhaps by the grace of God, both of them actually came from very, very strict religious backgrounds. And in those days, in the 1930s, they were still able to be exempted, which uh, as pacifists, that is, uh, which quite possibly saved their lives, as they later told me when I met them. Whatever's going on out there, as it were, in the big wide world of global power struggles, it always comes back to the individual and how we as individuals can live with integrity in a world that has so much structural injustice. And the role of the poet uh, in such circumstances can vary. There are two approaches, certainly. One is best described by the poet Denise Levatov, who lived most of the 20th century, and I'm quoting from her here. She said, I do not believe that a violent imitation of the horrors of our times is the concern of poetry. Horrors are taken for granted. I long for poems of an inner harmony in utter contrast to the chaos in which they exist. Insofar as poetry has a social function, it is to awaken sleepers by other means than shock. Not everyone would agree with her, especially not poets like Heathcote Williams, who says, or said, he's died, I think, earlier on this year, poetry is heightened language, and language exists to affect change and not be a tranquilizer. So here you have possibly two views of the poet, uh, which are contradictory. One is saying, I want poems to soothe my troubled mind in a chaotic world. And another poet saying, we've got to use poetry to wake everyone up and challenge the status quo. Uh, but there is someone who charts a third way, and that is Imtiaz Darker, who has a good way of dealing with these issues, uh, especially in her poem, The Right Word which I would love to read because it's such a good example. This is The Right Word by Imtiaz Darker, which was actually written in 2006. Outside the door, lurking in the shadows, is a terrorist. Is that the wrong description? Outside that door, taking shelter in the shadows, is a freedom fighter. I haven't got this right. Outside... Waiting in the shadows is a hostile militant. Are words no more than waving, wavering flags? Outside your door, watchful in the shadows, is a guerrilla warrior. God help me. Outside, defying every shadow, stands a martyr. I saw his face. No words can help me now. 
just outside the door, lost in shadows, is a child who looks like mine. One word for you, outside my door, his hand too steady, his eyes too hard, is a boy who looks like your son too. I open the door. Come in, I say, come in and eat with us. The child steps in and carefully at my door takes off his shoes. If I listen to it again later, I'll really take some of that in a little bit more. And I'm definitely going to because I think there's a lot in there to pick out. Well, thank you so much for answering those massive questions. So, I mean, we're about two thirds of the way through the interview now. So I'm going to take a little bit of a break um, from some of the heavy intellectual stuff before we move on to the last poem and ask you about your involvement in deep underground poetry, if I may. Now, I understand that you're heavily involved um, with DUP being a director of both Cafe Critique and we've just welcomed you into loudspeaker poetry as well, as well as running the newly formed Spoken Word of the Month competition. How does being involved in these things impact your personal DUP experience? Well, it's pretty early days, as, as you know, being a director of loudspeaker poetry. And um, my first responsibility with running the Spoken Word of the Month comp was only done yesterday, actually, on the 1st of December. So I think the jury's still out regarding this question. I have to say I've not been very active in Cafe Critique yet. But if you ask me this question in about six months' time, I can probably give a better answer. We'll have to see how it goes. I'm sure it'll go swimmingly. We we all have faith in you, so that's good. Thank you. Thank you. So you've really shown quite a big interest in spoken word recently. And as a fellow spoken word person, I, I really value that. How did your interest in reading your poetry out loud come about? Well, I mentioned earlier about my mother's interest in amateur dramatics. So I think there's something in my blood about being on stage. Um, I followed that up recently by putting together my first 45 minute one man poetry show, which I did on the 23rd of November. And I recited my way through 15 poems, three of my own and 12 from other poets. And in between each one, I made some comments, you know, about the poem, the poet who wrote it and so on. Um, yeah, my my adventure into live poetry recitation is driven by something that drives a lot of my life. And it's driven by a, a, an old saying from actually from the Gospel of Thomas, which is not one of the four Gospels in the Bible. It, it got rejected. So which is, of course, what makes it much more interesting, what gets thrown out. And um, one of the verses from that is just a series of 112 sayings. And one of them is this, if you bring forth that which is within you, it will give you life. If you do not bring forth that which is within you, it will kill you. And it's a pretty stark reminder that we humans are by nature creative beings and we're born to give creative expression. And if we don't do it, as it were, it tends to make us ill. And that's why I'm developing my spoken word poetry. It's something that's within me that needs to express itself. Yes. Else it's going to just fester inside as an unlived life and go putrid. 
So that's what's driving my new venture into spoken word. I got to do it. <laughs> that is the best answer I think we've had so far. <laughs> um, because, it, it, well, I think the thing with spoken word is that it is about the passion and it is about putting yourself yeah. out there. And perhaps you get to communicate a little bit about yourself that you don't always get from the written word. And I really, really value that about it. Uh, yes, I would agree with that. It, it's often only when you speak it out loud that you, you, you feel how authentic it is, what you're talking about. Uh, it's, it's one stage to bring it into being, writing it on the page, but it's another stage to then voice it uh, and send it out into the world. So, um, yeah, there were about 40 people maybe listening on my first outing into this uh, spoken word thing. Um, and I got pretty positive feedback. So um, it's encouraged me. I'm going to do another one in the spring. Well, thank you for your thoughts on this. So I'm going to move on to your last poem. It's coming to that time. So your third poem is called A Comforting Inevitability, which I'm going to play for the people at home now. A Comforting Inevitability by Joshua Bond The sun rose beyond its normal horizon. From this point on were all things changed. A journey forward was now in the upper house, and missing truth had merely been mislaid. A sense of new order emerged with increasing frequency as patterns of deliberation gave way to a singular path. The new baseline pointed to a tropic of conversion, with a question answered before even asked. In the final analysis, one moves beyond looking back concerned and looks forward with a kind of anticipating TLC, where, of all the many futures on the canvas, a special one emerges with a comforting inevitability. Beautifully read again. Um, tell, us, <laughs> tell us, if you would, a little bit about how this poem came about. To do that, I think my starting point has to be the poet and rock star Jim Morrison. He of the <laughs> 1960s group, The Doors. Um, Into this world we're thrown like a dog without a bone, an actor out on loan, riders on the storm. <laughs> and also from him, uh, Roadhouse Blues. The future's uncertain and the end is always near. Let it roll, baby, roll. Uh, Un uncertainty and an uncertain future are the perennial condition of the human race, right? And hence a perennial topic for poets to address. So this poem is my attempt to address the ever-present human experience of living with uncertainty. And I was looking for a way to express a hopeful way forward to identify signals that suggest that there are forces for good on our side, as it were. And though paths can be difficult and uh, troubling, there is a certain comfort in them when we know we are traveling the path that is uniquely ours to travel. It's a way of negotiating life on this planet on our own terms. And I believe there's a golden thread that's our path to follow. And if we manage to find it and stay faithful to it, then we can live this life with a sense of empowerment, even in the face of difficulties and, and ultimately death. 
Um, and that's the element of comforting inevitability in the title of this poem and in the last line. And I think what I liked in this piece and also from your first poem, which was Word Momentum, which we started off with, was the subtle rhyme scheme that you've laced into the words. Is, is rhyme something that's important to you? And how does your relationship with rhyme feature in your work? I tend to think in rhyme. Uh, so, for example, if someone says to me the word bottle, my mind goes throttle, grapple, nettle, kettle, rattle, tittle, tattle, whittle, cattle. You know, it just my mind is like a phonetic echo chamber. Um, it's somehow pre-wired for rhyme and alliteration. Um, Robert Frost famously said that poetry without rhyme was like playing tennis with the nets down. And I can see what he means. But in one sense, you then just get a different game, a different style of poem. And I have to say, I like both equally, both rhyme and freestyle. I like the challenge of fitting content into a rhyming scheme, uh, such as in Villanelles, of which I have a lot. Mm-hmm. And I also like the freedom to write unrestricted. But when revising uh, freestyle poems, I usually find myself tightening up on word count and at the same time adding back in elements of rhyme and rhythm to give the poem maybe a bit more bounce, if that's the right word. I, I think the rhyme also gives it um, quite a good sense of joy and a sense of optimism, sense of hope. Um, and that seems to feature in quite a lot of your work. Do you feel that you're that you are an optimistic person? I, I thought that was an interesting question because I've always considered myself a pessimist, uh, thinking <laughs> about thinking thinking about worst case scenarios which never happened. My mother used to say, "Today's the day we worried about yesterday, and all is well," which happens to have been generally true in my experience. So I have subjected myself to a large amount of unnecessary worry and pessimism. But the, the older I get um, and the more mortality begins to make its presence felt, I'm actually becoming more optimistic about human evolution. One book which I spent some years reading uh, a lot of is a book called A Course in Miracles. And It's summed up in three short sentences. Nothing real can be threatened. Nothing unreal exists. Herein lies the peace of God. And the older I get, the more I sense the truth of these words. I mean, after all, if nothing real can be threatened and if nothing unreal exists, then there really is nothing to worry about. Uh, The trouble is we have difficulty discerning the real from the unreal in this strange world in which we live. But um, as I said, somehow the truth of these words is slowly becoming more and more a part of me. And um, hence, possibly this is the cause of increasing optimism. And maybe that's why you see optimism reflected in my poetry. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm drawn to the line in your poem. You've got the sun rose beyond its normal horizon um, normal being the heavy word there which I feel personally seems to be a metaphor for courage and moving beyond your comfort zone into something beautiful do you feel that you are consistently pushing yourself like not just in everyday life but in your writing also basically yes 
Um, I'm essentially a continuous self-improver, but I have long periods of plateauing out. Um, if I haven't tried something new for some months, I tend to get agitated. And I, I feel within myself, and maybe others do as well, that there come certain points in your life where the, the next stretch of comfort zone is less scary than staying where you are. I was on Vision Quest 20 years ago in the Santa Cruz Mountains in California. And one of the things my guide teacher said to me was, in life, you get what you settle for. And that has stuck with me all these years. And after a, a plateau time, I tend to ask myself, am I prepared to settle for this or shall I go for the next growth challenge? And perhaps that notion is reflected in that line that you picked out, the sun rose beyond its normal horizon. And when I get a whiff of where perhaps I could be if I dare to take the next step, like I did recently with the spoken word thing, um, and when I feel my current comfort zone is beginning to feel more like a prison than a comfort, then I overcome my own inertia. And usually fairly soon, I'm often running with something new. So, yes, I am fairly consistently pushing myself in all areas of life, including writing. Yeah. And I think it's always good to move forward. So with all of this knowledge, with all of this poetry, with all of this spoken word that you do, um, have you ever considered publishing a book of your poetry? I actually have one published on Amazon, uh, which Ahavati very kindly gave me a wonderful review of on DUP's published authors page. Uh, the title of the book is Wandering Monks and Orphan Pilgrims, uh, with a subtitle, Poetry for the Inner Journey, book one. Um, I have three other books sitting on the shelf behind me. I, I find turning my poetry into books helps me organise it into themes. And it's also a kind of ritual that forces me to start looking at my poetry with a professional publisher's eye. So the, the three sitting behind me are Slow Man Awakening, Poetry for the Inner Journey Book 2, which is my personal journey in poems. I suppose you could call it confessional poetry. It's not published in the big wide world, but it's just sitting there. It's a space holder. I have a book called Lest We Forget, War Is Not Normal, obviously my anti-war poetry. And I have a book, Beautiful Planet, A Journey in Villanelles. And there's over 50 of them. Um, but none of them have seen the light of day, apart from on DUP, but as a book, um, they're not available to the general public, no. Actually, I also have a short book-length poem called The Tale of Night Verity, which is a story set in Cornwall about a female knight, and it's written in heroic couplets, and it needs some serious editing, I think. So where do you think your writing journey will take you next? Yeah, I'm intrigued to know the answer to that as well. <laughs> I'm beginning to feel that reciting poetry to small groups live might be my specialised niche. Uh, somehow this first time that I did it just uh, 10 days ago, it felt like I was somehow coming full circle. And it felt like an act of completion in, in my own foggy journey through life. 
And I hope that I live long and fit enough to give it a real go. You know, in, in the future, I hope to do it many more times. But that was the first time 10, go, 10 days ago. Well, Josh, thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak with me today. And we really appreciate your support of the Poetcast project thus far. Before we go, would you be so kind as to leave us a few recommendations on who we should read on the DU? On the DU? Yep. Um, well, I follow about 80 poets and I couldn't possibly do them all justice. But I will say that my first go-to person in my inbox is always Paul Dartford because his poems are guaranteed to be short um, and he has an and he has an English sense of humour from the same era as myself. Uh, so I always go there first. Uh, the other go-to person, were she still posting, which she is not currently, is Juende. Uh, yes. But you can go on Juende's postings and read her work. I don't think she's posted anything for about a year now, uh, or possibly even more, I'm not sure. Uh, concerning very new people on DUP, I, I think Razalif is great. Yeah. Um, but I think I'll leave it at that for DUP recommendations. <laughs> you don't want to leave anyone out. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I once I start, I've got to mention them all. <laughs> so is there any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Yeah, I have two final thoughts, I'm afraid. I go on and on, don't I? Um, <laughs> one is that to me, there is no greater action in support of future generations, and I have children and grandchildren, and I'm thinking also uh, future generations. The best thing I believe we can do for future generations is to nurture our own creative process, wherever it takes us. It's, to me, it's vital that as many humans as possible tap directly into the creative essence of the divine and give their creative expression whether it's poetry or anything else. And the final thing I would like to say is a quote from John F. Kennedy, actually. Um, less than a month before he was assassinated, Kennedy gave an address with the title Power Politics and the Artist's Role in Society at a ceremony held in honour of the poet Robert Frost. And in this uh, 15, 20 minute address, which you can listen to on, on SoundCloud. It's really interesting. Um, he said actually two things I want to say. Uh, one is art, which included poetry in the context he was speaking. Art is not a form of propaganda. It is a form of truth. And from that, he uh, gave his speech about the artist being allowed to be free to express themselves without interference from politics. And towards the end of his speech, he said this, when politics corrupts, poetry cleanses. Very, very wise words there. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. All right, thank you very much. Spotlight with Daniel Christensen. Hello, friend. So, thus far in my little corner of the podcast, I've made a point of searching out poets I've not had much prior acquaintance with, so I can discover them, right alongside you. I have found doing thusly to be an enriching experience. But today I'm going to bring you a right carefully chosen, 
from among many I have perused, by a poet I have long admired. My selection today comes from Poet's Revenge, whom I shall refer to as P.R., a writer of prodigious talent, both within structured form and without. I chose P.R. in particular for her ability to capture the essence of time-honored poets in her tribute pieces. I think most of us will agree that challenges are how we grow. So I've chosen a right that strikes me as epic in its scope and depth. It is my perpetual hope that you will be inspired to explore the poetry of those I spotlight for yourself, and what undiscovered countries lie within. Bounteous, strange, and wondrous beautiful to behold, if you'll allow me to borrow generously from the bard. So, with no further ado, I give you At Land's End by Poet's Revenge. Quote, The future is a gray seagull, tattling in its cat voice of departure. End quote. Sylvia Plath The gray-green abyss looks placid in its stark rendition of loneliness. It harbors creatures below the dim surface with its pale streams of white light. Are you down there, precious all-knowing? The smell is heavy salt and brackish awareness. It truly drowns the olfactory avoidance of it. And it is in my mouth, too. I can taste its chemical-laced brine, its metallics, as I become one with its shiny edge. A blinding light reflects itself randomly at my eyes, as if to say, You cannot predict my whims. I take orders from the sun itself. A barge creeps along in the distance, a giant block of slow progress. This is Winthrop, and it is its own island. Gull cry screeches its existence, and wind whips it clean of impermanence, and dead dry brush. The splintered pier wood is weather-beaten, bleached, sandblasted, its knotholes emerging like coronas of catastrophe, falling into jagged, asymmetrical formation. Boards creak below and under. That glinting admonishing of winter's approach. Seaweed hangs cemented like glossy hair, among plastic and green-black like death, from your barnacled rocks underneath. The tide line is visible. Your bald caps are polished clean in permanent exposure. There is little motion among them, but all certain something lives down there. Under that low-tide fringe, where water eddies around rocks, emerging at each wave trough. You are primordial, and I feel myself becoming a slinking survivor of your endless highs and lows, which continue on until the world around you no longer resembles your frank simplicity. As your sand is beige from afar, upon closer view it is littered with a detritus of seas. Great concrete submerged empires were crushed under your weight. How they are compressed into mineral minutiae that flow as the water for eternity. And I am here. Look at me. No father. No mother. Just this. 
oil-slicked sea crashing in waves, on a flotsam-strewn beach. The remnants sit in a neat row. conglomerated at the high tide line. Perhaps I shall crawl under a rock to my return, and hear no more the cries of humanity, to hear the soft hushing of infinite grains of sand, to become a grain of sand, no longer I. The wind picks up whitecaps blurring the blue horizon line. A sulfur wind blows ashore. That impregnable tenancy Commercial and calm. A plane roars above. A world's hopes flight of fancy. I stand within a snapshot of a place, weathered by progress and time. In this, my early home. An ecology of fast-forward in a world of slow-moving scuttling invertebrates. Their slime trails a story of a life spent plodding along rocks that move involuntarily at the sea's whim. No longer needed, they reek of contamination. Foghorns blow their story aloft. Muscles cling for dear life in the swaying tide. Those bivalves which cannot evolve. They drink the alkaline tide mirth. Eyeless, earless, drowning in the unbeknownst. The muck and tars around them like a new friend, replacing a non-existent old one. Lapping at their lintels, Ensuring its permanence. No matter. The muscles are inedible now. In this industrious danger zone. Drums spewing toxicity beaten by the rhythmic surf. Under some blue-green crest. Some muddied river's edge. And all the rivers end here in progressive tenacity. They empty into a paradise lost. As even their flanking mills sit empty their bandits long gone, forgotten. But the wind is sharp and biting, stinging in its mendacity, its uncaring, its unrecollection of what used to be. I feel it blow through me as I sway with it, in it, and I, too, am swept up in the tide. I am no rock, and the sea cannot move me. I can choose to leave. I am a seagull perched on its stilts, drinking salinity, or a marsh rat running for deep cover in the straws, away from the onshore impermanence of life, blowing adrift. I walk in this former home, and part of me never left. I feel my remains here as if I am the water table, sunk too low to greet what vibrancy blooms on shore. I am inimical as the fiddler crabs, waving their eerie solitudes into their sacrosanct burrows, only to be engulfed by the murky tide swell. They go unrattled, unshaken. Even poetry cannot do them justice. Those hermits in their enclosures, hearts unneeded, their gray matter gels in its shellacked shells, and they make it through another winter. Somehow, some way they are reborn each year. But I surely will never leave this place completely. The jet fuels will be my rescinded fallout and I will sink even deeper into those progresses. And my winters will glitter in an icy gratitudes. How grateful am I! How gaunt! I watch as the sands filter past the deadwoods, as they are pushed onshore slowly, rhythmically.
I breathe in a miracle's salted veracities of a time long forgotten or long remembered by a sea which never forgets past that rock out there, indelible edifice. The sea holds its grudges. It will throw our debris back at us, hurl it onto lawns, our walkways, as its smallest inhabitants rise and fall in servitude, as they dream in eerie equilibriums, whilst our imbalances jilt us awake. The rocks are too slippery to traverse on foot, too untrustworthy. The sea keeps them bare for its smallest inhabitants. Here, where I begin and end, here at land's end, where the periwinkles crawl. In the author notes, PR tells us this astounding poetry was inspired by Sylvia Plath, and these particular poems. Muscle Hunter at Rock Harbor, Green Rock, Winthrop Bay, Finisterre, our own memories of the Boston area. Many of us who take up the quill will have some shade of familiarity with the works of Plath, whose writing had an otherworldly depth, as if in the metaphors and connections she drew, her eyes were watching God, plucking and weaving subtle threads, gliding across the face of the waters. In the opening stanzas, PR establishes the scene and perspective of the right, in a way that echoes of Plath, the sensate detail, and the presence of spirit in the substrata, just below the tangible. The sense of deeper awareness that connects with the awareness of the author, as she explores her environs, here, at Land's End. The subtle way she grants emotional depth to the green-gray abyss, the waters, the light, painting them almost as emissaries or avatars of higher powers, and yet so very human. And given us this gorgeous array of immediate impressions, PR then magnifies the scene. The movement of the barge she describes as a giant block of slow progress, making a small insinuation of the presence of human society in the background of the milieu. The cry of the gull, whipped clean of impermanence and dead dry brush. This section speaks to me of the, of the natural cycle observed, of the constancy of change. The stark image of the, splint, of the splintered pier, its knotholes emerging like coronas of catastrophe. Such a vivid depiction. One can picture them like mouths falling agape in deathly horror. Note the attention to detail the poet applies to each feature of the landscape. The seaweed-like cemented hair, glossy and green-black like death, bald caps of the tide line, polished clean. The scene is alive with the passage of time, witnessed in a captured moment. In the next few stanzas, having so adroitly established the ravages of time and tide, the poet a uniquely human perspective into the picture. You are primordial, and I find myself becoming a slinking survivor of your endless highs and lows. All that we experience in this life is a kind of tide that washes us to nothing, and nothing endures. From here, the following few stanzas, the poet submerges and obliterates herself, her small existence, within the breadth and depth of what she has discovered at Land's End. No father, mother, only the sea, tides, and flotsam strewn beach. She may crawl beneath a rock and become just another grain of sand, and no longer I. Here I think about the teachings of spiritualist Eckhart Tolle, who says when we take a moment to look into the vastness of the blue sky or the star ocean, for a moment, in a stillness of no thought, no need to describe or categorize, 
pure awareness arises. Total oneness with everything. It seems to me the PR has found that kind of purity in these moments. To cease all separation, becoming everything and nothing. From here, PR describes the animal life of the milieu. The scuttling invertebrates and their slime trail. Their reek lifted by foghorns, telling their tale. The muscles poisoned by the toxicity of the waste. She describes the rivers emptying into the sea as tenacious, and their flanking mills, abandoned. Those who operated them she describes as bandits. Their labors colored, ill-gotten by this description, for their obtuse lack of cognizance, or care for the surrounding environment. Let the wind, biting and uncaring, blows in unremembrance. This reminds me of something I learned in my Buddhist studies. There is no sorrow in the world other than that which we project from ourselves, which is to say no suffering other than that which we perceive. And there is a redemptive quality to these lines that counterpoints their bitterness and abandon. That the cycles of nature grind on perpetually, life and death interwoven, ever-present. This sense of continuity, and she finds herself in its grip as the wind blows through her. She sways in what seems to me kind of a harmonious non-resistance. Here the poet asserts her sense of self, her ability to choose her to remove. She compares herself in beautiful metaphor to a seagull or a marsh rat, perched or fleeing through the straws, away from the impermanence of the shores. This next stanza is pivotal to me. I walk in this former home and part of me never left. I feel my remains here as if I am in the water table, sunk too low to greet what vibrancy blooms on shore. These lines are haunted and captivating. This melancholic sense of self, of the past, to be, in a sense, haunted by one's former self, one's former acquaintance with a home, a place, and our memories. It is something I often contemplate, saying, we are consummate time travelers into the past. Our level of sentience grants us this non-linear perspective, and our arts, a means to elucidate it. She is inimical as the fiddler crabs. How she describes them here, unrattled, unshaken, hearts unneeded. They seem so much less fragile and vulnerable than we. She describes the sea, it never forgets, it holds its grudges throwing our debris back at us, giving it such emotional life and presence. Its smallest inhabitants dream in eerie equilibriums, whilst our imbalances jolt us awake. To me this speaks of purity of awareness, of being, found in nature, that we so easily overlook, and yet with our minds, programmed to think in hammered rivulets of language, drawn away from the living moment by our often flawed memories, their tattered sails billowing silently as ghost ships, carrying us through dreams. Our old wounds continually rise, as I said my most recent rite, from the disturbed earth of their frequented graves, to haunt, to dog our steps. The close, here, where I begin and end, at land's end. Consider the peace as a whole from here, the sea, wind and tides, the passage of time, the poet and her memories of this place, looking back across time's ravages, through her recollections and the deep roots of sentiment and memory that connect her, the spirits, emotions, and minds of the world and all its inhabitants, and all that is wrought upon it and by it. I know that I have touched into only bits and pieces of the sheer poetic brilliance of this poem, and yet I felt it was one that had to be shared. I feel it is an absolute masterpiece, 
which should be passed beneath the eyes, through the corridors of the mind, and mansions of the heart of generations to come. I hope you feel the same. On behalf of Team Awesome Force and the Podcast Project, I, the Fire Elemental, thank you for your time and participation. Maybe forever or until next time. Goodbye, friend. Deep Underground Poetry Don't come. If her lips were well defined, like Rose's petal, silky wind, then there could be room for mine, accidentally. And if she told me there was room, inside her bedroom window too, I would crawl beneath the moon, accidentally. While she was tall and lean and tan, and I just couldn't, well, I can, trace the lines inside her hand, accidentally. She might watch me trace them too, with language art books all but strewn around the bed inside her room, accidentally. If she would close the book to see if I would laugh or I would leave, she would be surprised by me, accidentally. See, I could study prose of France or the seams that line her pants. My heart would flip and it would dance, accidentally. Still, I'm too weak for sound, but her body, long and loud, it crawled atop me, pressed my blouse, accidentally. Her mouth found mine, we kiss, not a gentler move than this. Pink silk lips felt like hot sin, accidentally. So if she were to use long hands, like a lion to a lamb, I'd surrender, I'd be damp, accidentally. Then if you were to call me dizzy, it's not wrong that I would let me be eaten alive by God's sweet mercy, accidentally. And that was Rachel Lauren there with her poem, Pray, that was read wonderfully as a recent addition to the spoken word pool. And you can check out more of Rachel Lauren's poetry on deepundergroundpoetry.com. Links to all poets mentioned in the show will, of course, be listed in the show notes. My thanks goes out to all poets in this episode that gifted us their songs, their voices and their time. Eamon, how's it been for you, my dear? It's been, uh, it's, well, this, this has been, um, this is, this is, I just can't explain it really. You know, words cannot fucking explain how good it's been. But I'll try. Here we go. It's been pretty good, Missy. Thank you. Um, really enjoy talking to uh, Solidarities. I hope you liked it too. Um, go check him out. Uh, check his poetry out. Risky Christmas. What can I say? Uh, Missy. I was victorious. Yeah, Missy was victorious, yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, I look forward to Lord Vilex uh, having a go with you. Um, Daniel. Thank you. Amen. And uh, there's a madness to our method, we assure you. Thank you, bro. <laughs> we're eight episodes rolling in the deep and we'll keep them coming so until next time so in november we ran the forum competition thankful where we asked you to share your gratitudes at this holiday time of year the winner of that competition was luna Greyhawk with her poem the torment of realizing so many thanks to goddess worship who will be reading this poem beautifully on luna Greyhawk's behalf stay tuned to enter next month's competition which will be announced shortly until next time, guys, and whatever you celebrate, have a great Christmas, a rocking Yule, a happy holidays, and Feliz Navidad. Bye! Bye! Merry fucking Christmas! Don't forget Kwanzaa.
Can I say that? Merry Christmas and happy fucking Hanukkah. <laughs> keep balanced together, you know what I mean? The Torment of Realizing Written by Luna Greyhawk Read by Goddess Worship She laid it all out Her phone off No distractions Fully present Time to feel this She chose coffee with a soul Who understands the agony of coexisting With a mind splintered The pain of living on Seven days after dying By her own hand the nauseating guilt of her audacity to figure it all out one day too late. The torment of realizing her epiphanies and apologies don't mean shit to those caught in the icy grip of her shadow. Not this time, anyway. How beautiful it is, love given freely without a rule of thumb to measure her by, especially when she knows she's always going to come up short. Gift wrapped and placed softly inside her upturned palms, healing hands held hers from across the table, eyes full of grace and understanding falling upon her face, as all her words made of the overwhelming. Sorrow, repentance, heartache, heartbreak, anger, loss, pain, forgiveness, hope, love. It all spilled out, flowing headstrong over the gates she constructed to keep them all safely inside her mouth. When she was finished, she looked for proof that she'd been too much, that her emotions had been too big to share, but she found none. Instead, her heart found the compassion of an old friend staring back, and she was thankful.